0: Today's guest is James Lindsay, mathematician, free thinker, skeptic, Southerner, author, and independent thinker. Hi, Jim, great to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. I've been a follower of your tweet stream for quite a while, at Conceptual James on Twitter, one of the more interesting tweet streams out there. And I heard about your new book, reached out to you. I'm glad you agreed to come on the show. James has published several books, often with co-authors, including How to Have Impossible Conversations, which I read, which is a very good book, and another one, Everybody is Wrong About God, which I didn't know he had written until I did my research for this podcast, and I'm going to read it soon. James is also perhaps best known other than for his books as having participated with Peter Boghossian and Helen Pluckrose. I love that name, Pluckrose. What a wonderful name in a number of parody scholarly articles, uh, basically sending up postmodernist rhetoric, several of which were accepted for publication, including one that maintained, and I love this, that the penis should be seen not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct, isomorphic to performative toxic masculinity. Hilarious, the kind of horseshit that you can get published out there. You guys must have had some fun with that project.
1: Oh, Lord, did we ever. The laughter. Oh, I was even reading through one of our our papers again this morning just briefly, and I was like, I can't believe the stuff we wrote and that they accepted. Just so stupid. It's so funny, some of it. So, yeah, that was that was I mean, it was it was hard. It was really difficult to 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 learn that stuff kind of in real time. You know, none of us have a real background in any of that crap. And so we had to learn that stuff in real time and face the reality of what it says, which is depressing when you start to realize these people actually mean it. It's one thing to make it as jokes. It's another thing when these, you realize that the people doing this really mean it. And then, of course, we tried to make them funny. So the, there was a lot of laughing. I mean, I remember getting on the phone and talking either with Peter or with Helen to try to come up with ideas and just laughing ourselves kind of sick uh,
0: with, with stuff we might might try to write about. It was a good time as I, I, I you say, both humorous and depressing at the same time. Did I recall that you wrote 20 and like seven got accepted for publication and another seven or so were in process at the time you guys revealed the stunt?
1: That's right. Yeah. So we wrote 20 in the span of about 10 months. So it worked out to a paper every two weeks, which is pretty quick. And um, seven of them were accepted. Four actually got published of those seven. One of them got an award for excellence in scholarship and then (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: that's the one about dog humping (laughs) (laughs) oh god i love it oh it's
1: the best it's the best
0: you guys deserve a meta award right a meta theory theory meta meta backwards up and down reverse irony award for that stunt i love it
1: we need like the anti-pulitzer or something because the pulitzer put itself in the toilet so we don't want one of those anymore
0: yeah. I guess I saw, in fact, somebody referred to it as Sokol Squared. Basically, Alan Sokol did something similar back in the 90s, though not with quite the radical humor that this particular stunt had. So, uh, well done, gentlemen and lady. Alan. Well, thank you. I guess you're not supposed to say lady anymore, but fuck that, right? <laughs> That's right. I'll say what I goddamn well please and kiss my ass. <laughs> Today, we're mostly going to talk about James's new book, co-authored with Helen Pluckrose, titled, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody, in which the authors carefully and in great detail explore the history of postmodernism and how it has morphed into a series of theories that underlie a lot of what we see today in the public sphere. It'll be out at the end of next month, at least according to Amazon. Is that still about right, late August? It's complicated. It's mostly right.
1: It got delayed because of the pandemic. It was supposed to come out in May and then June, and then that's August 25th. They've stuck it with, but they've also said that when they start getting enough copies from the printers, the the distribution will probably just kind of start. So the official date is the 25th of August, but it may start trickling out a few weeks early uh, with the first, you know, however many thousand copies they get their hands on.
0: Cool. And as always, we'll have a link to the Amazon page on the episode page, which you can find at JimRutShow.com. Interesting to note, even though it's not out yet, it's already an Amazon bestseller. And after reading it, I can see why. This book will be an indispensable reference for people who want to deconstruct the deconstructionists. It's extremely carefully written, well-researched, has very good footnotes that take you to back up for pretty much everything they say. So if you want to become a anti-POMO warrior, read this fucking book, people. I'm telling you, it's well worth it. Obviously, I got a pre-publication copy from James. I actually did read the whole book cover to cover and give it a major thumbs up.
1: Thanks, man. I actually read it again the other day and I was like, wow, this is a whole lot more fair than I I was kind of afraid we were taking some, some swings toward the fences. But it's like, wow, this is really fair.
0: Yeah, I was surprised, frankly, based on some of the shit you say on your tweet stream, right, that you were just going to skewer the motherfuckers unrelentlessly. But you were actually very fair.
1: No, the goal was actually to give it a very scholarly treatment and to explain it to people in a very fair and clear way. Um, Twitter's the arena. But, you know, books and publications are another, another matter. you got to be more serious. Uh, Twitter is good for screwing around. Plus I took the gloves off on Twitter and the, you know, they started setting cities on fire and saying that that's okay because whiteness is property. And I was like, okay, gloves off. But we wrote the book before <laughs> before they started setting cities on fire. So um, the gloves were still on a little bit when we wrote it. It's probably good in, in the in the long run because it does need to be treated fairly so that people will see that we're not misrepresenting The bullshit that they actually believe, which is it, which is so insane that it's almost impossible to believe that they really think that.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into that. You know, is it actually insane, or how the hell is it that people come to believe that horseshit? And do they actually right? Before we dig into the meat of the matter, and I know you do talk about this throughout the book, I think it would be useful to lay out the alternative to postmodernism, social justice, quote unquote, and all that stuff. You know what you and Helen lay out. It's kind of interwoven throughout the book, and there's a strong argument about it at the end, is that liberalism is the alternative, right? Philosophical liberalism, and this is from your introduction, philosophical liberalism is opposed to authoritarian movements of all types, be they left-wing, right-wing, secular, or theocratic. Why don't you talk a little bit about that alternative? Because, you know, it is true, we still do have issues that need to be resolved, You know, there really is still racism. There really still is anti-gay bigotry. Women have not reached full operational equality in the world, though in the West we're getting closer. But there's another way to get there rather than this homo horse shit. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about the fact that you're not saying we shouldn't fight for increased social justice uncapitalized, but the way to do it is through liberalism.
1: Yeah, that's right. Our argument is ultimately about methods. Uh, We care, if we have to use big words, we care about the approach uh, with, with regard to epistemology and ethics. And we try to make the sustained case that the liberal approach in the philosophical sense, which is the same philosophy that wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the US, for example, that approach is the best we have for doing epistemology and ethics correctly so social justice is an ideal and a lot of people don't understand this because the the freaking movement that's so ascendant right now doesn't want anybody to know it or doesn't want anybody to remember it social justice is something that has been of interest to most societies throughout all of history except maybe totalitarian ones it's certainly something that has been part of the say american experiment from the beginning and then that's also imported through most of all of the rest of the uh, advanced democracies of the world. And so social justice a, as an ideal just means a fairer, more just society. And then the question becomes, how do you try to achieve it? And what we wanted to try to show people is that there are lots of ways. There are lots of approaches. There are religious ideas about social justice. You can go back to Walter Rauschenbusch. We don't mention that in the book specifically, but you can you can go back to Walter Rauschenbusch at the turn of the 20th century. And he was trying to push the social gospel from a uh, Baptist perspective. So there are religious approaches. The term social justice was invented by a Jesuit priest, as a matter of fact. So there there are religious approaches. There are liberal approaches, obviously, that we argue for. But there are also communist approaches. There are socialist approaches. There are materialist approaches. There are lots and lots and lots of different approaches. Even some conservative approaches can be seen as trying to establish a more fair society. So there are lots of approaches. So what we want to try to do is take away the illusion that the current movement calling itself social justice is the only way to go about it. It uses a very specific method, which is critical theory infused with postmodern epistemology and ethics. And so we say no to that. We say, let's look at other ideas. So the liberal method for us is superior, as we make the case in the last chapter, because it works because it is a it's not what it's accused of being it's not actually even necessarily as much a political philosophy as people think it is it is in fact a method of resolving conflicts between people in societies so if you look at capitalism what you have is people with property rights once those are enshrined that's a liberal philosophy position is that people have property rights Once people have property rights, liberalism says, well, you can do with your own property what you want, and you can work it out, and you can trade pieces of your property for other pieces of other people's property. And capitalism becomes the liberal market approach or economic approach. And then you can look at it in politics. Well, you get your vote, everybody else gets their vote. So we're going to now use a democratic way to to authenticate who our leaders are. We're not going to rely on the divine right of kings anymore. We're not going to rely on who the warlord was that was able to knock everybody down and they become the leader. That's not how we do. We're going to ask the public and let the public decide. and democracy becomes the liberal approach to resolving political conflict. If it's all written in the Constitution, if you want to redress the government for your grievances, you can petition, you can peacefully protest. You can always peacefully assemble. These are the first, you know, these are core amendments and, and core foundational principles of a liberal democracy that works. And then when it comes to understanding ideas, say if you and I have a different idea, And we wanted to say well you say i'm right and and you know you say you say you're that you're right and i say that i'm right and so we both believe that we're right we have to have a means of settling that conflict and liberalism offers a means it says let's go ask the world or let's see who can give the better more reasoned argument if we can't get the evidence it doesn't say whose feelings are hurt it doesn't care then that's why it's so difficult for people to accept because sometimes the truth hurts and sometimes life isn't fair and it can be very difficult to accept. But the liberal approach to to making sense of the world is of course that we can, we can still be aware of the idea that there are realities of hurting people or things being unfair that we don't want to see and liberal ethics uphold that. But at the same time, we say, look, we're going to look at the evidence and the evidence can include that hurt feelings are bad. And we're going to look at the the best arguments. And we're not just going to give in because somebody's making a demand or somebody's claiming offense or, or whatever else. We actually have to make reasoned arguments. We actually have to appeal to the evidence. And so we have these different methods to try to resolve conflicts between individuals that come up within a society. And our case is that if we want a more fair, more just, socially just society, we need liberalism to keep making the gains that it's made for the past several centuries, rather than saying, oh, wow, we're actually achieving real progress now, so let's abandon the thing that got us there, which is what the current movement is asking us to do. It wants to throw away liberalism and use its own radical approach, which is, I mean, we don't get into it deeply in the book, but is actually known as liberationism or liberation philosophy, which comes out of the the Frankfurt School of uh, Critical Theory, which is neo-Marxism, if you if you must know.
0: Yeah, Marcuse and those assholes, right?
1: Yeah, Marcuse in particular. um, You know, you can dip into stuff that Adorno wrote, and of course, Max Horkheimer is relevant. You can dip into these guys. But Marcuse was actually extremely relevant to what we're seeing today. Um, A lot of people don't realize this, but we all know who these, these Antifa assholes are running around. And these Antifa guys... Well, they are basically, if you take Herbert Marcuse's philosophy, especially on repressive tolerance and Franz Fanon's ideas, he's a French psychoanalyst that was t- studying the uh, colonial condition. If you take those two people and you mix them together, you get Antifa. That's what it is. That's where their ideas come from. That's why they think they're justified in behaving in the world the way they do. So Marcuse is definitely, his presence is definitely felt. Uh, throughout the world, and it's last time he had a massive following was in the mid 1960s. He wrote Repressive Tolerance in 1965. Lo and behold, 1967 and 1968, we have massive riots, including race riots, that end up, you know, wrecking American cities. For
0: example, that even Detroit hasn't even recovered from. Yeah, indeed. In fact, we talk about liberalism and the fact that it has always been imperfect, but continuing to improve. And we have to acknowledge that, right? You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote the beautiful words, all men are created equal, but he was also a slaveholder. Oh, well, right? But on the other hand, in 1808, the U.S. government abolished the slave trade. You know, Britain abolished slavery not too long thereafter. United States spent 600,000 deaths, equal to about 5 million at our current population, to end slavery, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll talk about some of the other progress of liberalism. But to show how deep it is in the DNA of liberalism to think this way, I love to point people to a you know mid-19th century essay by John Stuart Mill called The Subjection of Women, in which he applied liberalism about as radically as you could at that time to argue for the fact that women needed to be liberated and that their subjugation by the patriarchy was fucking wrong and inconsistent with liberalism. I'd love to point people back who think of liberalism as somehow retrograde to one of the core thinkers of liberalism, Mill, in that essay
1: yeah mill is 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 one of my my philosophical heroes when people kind of ask me what kind of a liberal are you you know i you know I think highly of Jefferson and I think highly of course of Locke and Paine and all of these people. But, you know, I really resonate with Mill. So I think million liberals are known as traditional liberals now or something like that. So okay, that's me uh, if I have to take a label. And I, I, I fully agree. It's like the point of liberalism was to say, let's start with some very fundamental principles about about humanity, the universal humanity, and the, the recognition that human beings are also autonomous individuals who have their own minds. Their own intellects, their own capacity for reasoning, and their own capacity to make moral decisions for themselves. They have the capacity, of course, if they wish, to join groups, say religious groups, but those are a matter of their private conscience and their personal volition, and so they cannot be compelled by the power, say, of the state to have certain beliefs, and that we call that secularism. And so these views were literally the ones that allowed us to untie the knots of injustices like patriarchy, racism, slavery, homophobia. We can go down the list. Judith Butler, one of the big, big famous theorists in, in the critical vein now. Um, Judith Butler calls it that exasperated, et cetera, when you try to name all of them, <laughs> all the different oppressions that they, that they focus on. And so liberalism turned out to be the thing that moved us away from a long human history in which different cultures arose, of course, and they had different approaches to these different questions. And some of them did better than others on different aspects of them, but none of them really had anything like universal humanity, respect for the individual to understand that each person has their own mind. And none of them had a robust and impartial or as impartial as possible of course, nothing's perfect method of resolving conflicts between individuals within their societies that, that could match with liberalism, which is why when liberalism came onto the scene, you started to see massive advances in progress. As you, you notice, you know, Jefferson writes, all men are created equal in 1775 or six. He goes on, you know, he's a slave owner. He struggles with this, but the slave trade is, is outlawed by 1808. And then, you know. By 1863, emancipation is is, is had. And then, again, chipping away over time. A lot of people, I think, uh, of these, these oppressions, I should say. So a lot of people think, and we say this in the book, a lot of people think that it's a reasonable argument to point back at the way that liberalism, it wasn't, people have this unrealistic expectation like that liberalism just showed up on the scene and then bam, everything's liberal, everything's great, everybody's free, everything works out. No, it's, it, it's, it's a process, it's a conflict resolution system that allows you to start fixing problems. So it would be ridiculous to think, oh, well, people thought of liberalism, now everything's liberal. And that's sort of the way the critics of liberalism think about it and say, well, look at how, how badly it's failed without tallying up its ridiculous successes alongside of that, which are unmatched in human history and that no other society has ever produced. And I'm not saying some pion to necessarily the United States. The same philosophies applied in other places, as you noted, Britain outlawed slavery before the United States did. Okay, so the same principles applied in another context worked there a little bit faster. It's not like I'm saying, oh, well, we're the most magical people ever. No, that's asinine. What makes sense, though, is that these principles, when applied, literally anywhere in the world that they get applied, start creating positive changes that reduce oppression and subjugation, that increase flourishing, that increase people's economic standing and freedom and ability to move within that system. It's just the best system for resolving the problems of of human conflict that we've come up with. Not to say that it's perfect, but that's the whole point. You, You mentioned that liberalism actually only works because it's willing to take criticism of itself and improve what it's already doing. So if you look at liberalism as a kind of philosophy, it's silly to say whether it's perfect or not. That's not the point. The point as a philosophy is that it's willing to take self-criticism and say, how can I do better at every stage with whatever I'm doing now? So if the question is slavery, how the ideals got written down, all men are created equal. How do we start living up to that? So we start living up to it with abolition. And then later on, you hear Martin Luther King stand up and you say, you hear him appeal. I should actually back up. Before abolition, you had Frederick Douglass stand up. It was very widely distributed this 4th of July, just just this month. And you heard Frederick Douglass stand up and appeal to that promise in the Constitution and said, where is it? If we have slavery, where is it? Show us that promise. And then people did. 10 years later, they did. And then Martin Luther King stands up in the early 1960s, and he says, really, if we're all supposed to be equal, where is it? Show us that promise. Show us that promise. And a few years later, the Civil Rights Act was passed. In other words, we did. We started to live up to that promise. But that promise had to be there. It had to be made uh, stable and, and something to be to appeal to in order for us to be able to live up to it and appealing to living up to it rather than tearing it apart is what enabled us to make progress consistently and steadily over painful decades and painful centuries and get to a place that's, that's, I mean, except for a lunatic fringe, undeniably
0: better for literally everybody. Agreed, well said, well said. One last thing before we get into the meat of it, and let's try to keep this short so we do have time to get into the details of the book. If we think about fighting against illiberalism as, one of the core calls of humanity, I would say so, at least. Look at the 20th century, the three big cusps of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, while they also had obviously some big power politics and self-interest, etc., could be broadly construed as being liberalism versus illiberalism, right? And in our current world, we have illiberalism of both the right and the left. You know, I'd argue that a piece of shit like Donald Trump is at least a wannabe illiberal, but fortunately so incompetent and so driven by his all-galaxy narcissism, he isn't very good at it. We have other illiberals more, maybe more effective, maybe not. Some of the white supremacists, some of the wacko thinking like neo-reactionary, dark enlightenment, etc. Why did you choose to focus on left illiberalism in this book rather than illiberalism more generally? Well,
1: uh, it, it's a big problem and a big question, and you're absolutely right that it's a both sides problem. But in the scope of a book, you do have to have something to focus upon, and you should probably focus on that which you are genuinely expert in and that you've studied. So we were genuinely expert in this particular aspect of illiberalism, the, the left version that's, that's coming forth in the so-called woke or social justice movement. And so we had to talk about our expertise and the thesis that we wanted to the thesis is actually quite narrow of the book. The thesis is that postmodernism infected this particular radical leftist line of thought and made it something very difficult to argue against. If you and this is how that happened. So, you know, we had to pick a focus, and we wrote the wrote to that focus. Also, our feeling is, as we we explained in, I think, the introduction to the book, but it may be in the last chapter, we, we feel like the, the left has abandoned its principle of liberalism, whereas conservatism has always kind of dithered about its commitment to liberalism. And so we feel as denizens of the left also being relevant, but we, we feel that the left in the sense that it has abandoned what it should have been standing for has committed a sin that needs to be addressed. And in fact, I would insist that while it's all complicated and it's reciprocal and everything else, that that the stuff from the left is driving a great deal of the reactionary side from the right. And that if the left cleans its house up and sanity prevails on the broad left with, of course, everybody having their lunatic fringe, that a lot of the tensions of the culture war are likely to calm down. So we, we set our sights on the left because we're there, because we know it better, because we need a specific focus. And because while Donald Trump, for example, is an enormous irritant, and I think that the right wing has been doing a bunch of bullshit for 40 plus years now, that's uh, its own threat to liberalism. The outburst of behavior from the left is a genuine threat that's driving the problem as it exists in the world today. Also, they've stolen our academies. And as academics, we're pretty pissed
0: about that. All right. You open up the book with talking a fair amount about the history of postmodernism. Now, frankly, I think that it's very interesting to read, but I don't want to go into copious detail on it here. But for our audience, give enough of the history of postmodernism to go forward. And then we'll talk a little bit about your two principles and four themes.
1: Okay, great. Yeah. So postmodernism is a movement that actually kind of arose in art and literature, maybe in the 1940s. And it, it started to question, I guess, the best way to think about it is it started to question the, the rigid structure and rules that would construct art if you wanted to get into the proper history of it. So you'd see people doing experimental nonsense, like taking a book, and then taking every noun that they come across in the book and replacing it with the, the next noun. Uh, in the dictionary, and then trying to extract meaning out of whatever results. This is a postmodern art project on, on, on literature, for example, where you would see people with music saying, oh, well, you're supposed to do this kind of a thing with this musical scales, so we're going to invert that. So you'd often see people, this is key to the idea, inserting arbitrary rules that would be normally considered out of bounds, specifically to point out the fact that rules are arbitrary. And so that's sort of the, the, the ethos of postmodern thought that led it to challenge boundaries and challenge expectations. So then in the 1960s, or really in 1950s into the 1960s, you had this spate of French philosophers who were very caught up in structuralism as a way of understanding the world, which has been since discredited. That's the idea, essentially, that language and the way we use language structures how we think and therefore structures all of society. It doesn't quite work that way, (laughs) but uh, they got very invested in studying the way that language and power are interrelated with one another. And they became very interested in seeing the way that, that culture is produced through uses of language, representation, imagery, power, and again, started to want to show that the rules are A, arbitrary, and B, that they actually contain the seeds of structural oppressions that appear in society. So you had big thinkers like Jacques Derrida, the famous post-structural linguist, and you had Michel Foucault, who claimed he was something like a historian, but what he really did was archaeologies, as he called them, and genealogies, where he tore up history to show how thought had kind of big regimes of truth, he called them, or epistemes and these things dictated how people would think and then look how wrong they were and look how terrible all of these things led to, you know, in, in practice. And so the, the conclusion of these guys would be, well, how could we possibly think that we're right now? And how could we possibly think that our words have genuine meaning that anybody can understand that the author can have intent. And it's kind of this whole mind blowing mind expanding um, way as, as Foucault would have put it, it was about expanding the potentialities of being. So meaning that, you, you know, if you, if you break the rules of how you think you're supposed to think about the world, if you deconstruct them by showing that they're arbitrary and that there are other alternatives, then you can live in different ways that the current rules of society don't allow you to, which if you're gay or into uh, rough sex, like, um, Foucault was, there's some credit to be to be given to that claim, but if you're talking about you know the potentialities of being being limited by gravity, um, it's not so much. But they uh, to kind of wrap up used all of this this thinking this dissatisfaction with how the world was going, and we can talk about that historically too because it's actually interesting in a moment. But they used it to forward the most important idea that they have is that all knowledge, all claims to truth are ultimately the result of political processes and therefore are actually means of forwarding power politics and not means of trying to describe what's real in the world whatsoever.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. I will confess until recently, I had not paid too much attention to postmodernism, mostly for that reason especially its denigration of science. I go, what the fuck, assholes, right? If you can't see that science is a fundamentally different way of knowing than anything that came before it and is qualitatively different, then whatever it is you're thinking is obviously horseshit, right? And so this theory that there is no objective knowledge, there is no objective truth, while it's funny, I sympathize with it at one level, because even my beloved science Those of us who've dug into the sociology of science know that it goes down wrong roads. It does various things that it shouldn't, but it it has a built-in intersubjective and interobjective mechanism for reconverging to what is correct. And it seems that these clowns miss that somehow. I don't know how. That's actually a really good summary
1: of it. I can tell you how. It's that they... Well, there's a couple of reasons. If we can get into the psychological side, which is I think that they legitimately were just jealous of the prestige and power of science. And they use that jealousy to do, as Foucault called them, archaeologies and genealogies, where they nitpicked it like, oh, look, here's a failure. Oh, look, here's a failure. So where you say that you can sympathize and they, you can see where the sociology of science has done this wrong, it's got that wrong. They, they cherry pick that, heart, that part, and then they skip the part where it reconverges entirely because that's not useful to complaining about the thing that they're jealous of and angry at. The other, the more theoretically grounded reason that they express in their writing is that they believe that, well, they look at that sociology of science and they say, well, obviously this is a social process that decides which methods are are valid and which methods are not, which truths are valid, which truths are not. Since that's a social process, and you can see what a dirty social process it's been, especially historically, it must be just dirty power politics that decided which methods. And so Foucault's point for specific, to be specific was that whether or not a claim about objective truth is actually true doesn't matter. He didn't say that it's not. He said that it doesn't matter if it is or not because it ignores the more relevant point that the politics of how we decided it or what we need to put our focus on. And so they had this very nihilistic, despairing kind of perspective where they're, you know, sort of woe is me and um, everything must be politics because I think, honestly, because their politics weren't working out. These were Marxists who were staring upon the failures of Marxism throughout the world. They were staring at the failures of communism to, to affect good things. They're looking at the the, the deaths, the genocides, the reactionary pushbacks that led to fascism. And they're just seeing that the communist revolutions weren't working. They did have a soft spot in their heart for for Mao. They were big fans of Mao occasionally. And sometimes they would change their mind and not be, you know, being in the 1950s and getting into the 1960s. Uh, their buddy Pol Pot was hanging out with them there in the Sorbonne. And that's sort of like the culture that they had happening. And, and he went back to Cambodia. That went real well. Fuckheads. And so... Yeah, they had this whole view that that truth and falsity don't matter because the politics of determining what's true and false are the really interesting thing. And of course, when you start looking at it and you start feeding that kind of crap to activists and and people who, frankly, don't have the chops to do science because it's hard uh, to do science, you give them a tool that's just like, you know, the best thing ever if they want to start chopping down at the field that's taken seriously where their fields are not taken as seriously contextually, the humanities had been losing a lot of ground in terms of being like real academia as science really rose to prominence. And through the, you know, the logical positivism movement, you can think back to the 1950s and all of those TV shows, you know, so we will change the world with science. And they had that very, you know, voice we would associate with just being, you know, promotional crap now. And so they, they were in that milieu reacting against that thinking, well, what about this nonsense we do? Why, is it, why are we not important? Can't get lost on you how often Foucault pointed out that one of his points was to be an intellectual rock star in the French tradition and to, to do what he did to attract pretty boys. And he said it more than once. So, um, you know, there was this whole edgy avant-garde, let's break down the establishment mentality that was just happening and they get caught up in it. How people decided to pick it up? Envy. I can't, I can't, figure out another reason. They're envious of the sciences, saw tools to tear them apart, off to the races.
0: Interesting. Yeah, and good point about the fact that it was in the face of the decline of Marxism. I, I don't remember who said it, it was one of my favorite quotes, is that by the early 1990s, the last Marxists on earth were the members of the English departments of elite American universities. That's right. And most of them were feminists. And that's actually
1: key, right? Because that's who picked this stuff up and ran with it. It was feminists who were trying to blame capitalism for the patriarchy, you know, we're talking feminists in like the 1970s and and so on. They're just saying, oh, these these kind of very Marxist feminists were starting to pick up these postmodern ideas because many of their attempts to deconstruct gender and even to poke at biological sex were just getting railroaded by biology. <laughs> they just, you know, they're out of touch with reality. Social constructivism is a thing, but it only goes so far and they want it to go 100% and that's, that doesn't work. And so they started to pick this stuff up, and it started to get more and more radical with the with, with with what they were trying to attempt. And science wasn't having it. You started to have people coming up in the '70s and '80s with stuff like um, strong objectivity. That was Sandra Harding in the 1980s. She was trying to say that that you know we need a feminist empiricism that brings a womanly perspective into science because it's always been excluded. And it's just when you start doing that. Science becomes your enemy, and you need a tool to deconstruct its, uh, as they would say, it, its hegemony. And there's postmodernism laying there. One truth is as good as any other, and every truth is political. And if it's been excluded, that means it's problematic, and it needs to be interrogated. Perfect fit for these radical feminists who then imported this idea that they really should have left. <laughs> left on the on the cutting room floor of French philosophy, because the French didn't take this stuff up. The French were like, what is this crap? No.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think you just hit on it in passing, but I'm going to call it out because it's so important. You say, yeah, it has something of merit to it, but they go too far, 100%. You know, the language I like to use is both and, right? It is true that the sociology of science is important. It is true that the decisions we make and the institutional mechanisms we've put in place for the allocation of dollars to different research disciplines, how careers are had in science, what are the barriers to the access to scientific careers are all important questions. But, but the inner core of the scientific engine to my mind, is really sound. Yes, we can improve a little bit the engine, but there's a big, big difference to the the control mechanisms around science and the inner engine of tentative, step by step, based on falsifiability of theories, backed up by data and/or experiment, etc. That is unchallenged, to my mind. I've, I've seen no challenge that makes any sense. While the issues of sociology of science and indeed the power. Relationships and politics around what science chooses to study and particularly how money flows are indeed important. So what we really need to do is keep both in our minds, not go to this nihilistic crazed view that it's that it's all power because it's not.
1: That's right. Yeah. Both the the critical theory tradition and the postmodern tradition uh, have have ways to confuse people about this. And of course, the, the feminists would have been been aware, following Marcusa in particular, of, of the critical theory tradition. Uh, much of the Marxist thought of the time, which feminism had taken up a lot of, was, was, was infused with that. And so it would say, well, you have to look at what's hegemonic and what people are creating the, the hegemony, what ideologies are they pushing? And so then they would do these same kind of archaeological or genealogical digs and say, hey, look, well, you know, the people who used to explore The arctic and find out information about the arctic these these geographers had to be manly tough men and that we really did make decisions you know in the late 19th century about truth about the arctic based on how studly the person was and how many you (laughs) you know how many polar bears they could kill or some stupid thing before anybody had any idea of how to how to make scientific determinations about the world and then they just import that forward and say well that must have set up a hegemony that's kept women out all along Because, you know, on some level, it was used as a justification, and on other levels, it was one we were chipping away at. But if you only look at the dark side of it, you get mad. And with the postmodern thought, the idea is that following, for example, either Foucault or Derrida, there's two different constructions that get you there, that both get you there. The idea is that the discourse is constructed around a thing, so the scientific enterprise are constructed by the people who create them, and that their political biases are what create how those discourses work and thus the power dynamics within that sociology. So they would say from a postmodern perspective that if there is some problem in the sociology of science, say sexism or whatever, that it must come from the science itself because the discourses of the science are what are structuring that sociology because of that French structuralism stuff. And so the point of postmodernism being post-structuralist is to tear down those power dynamics you know, they look at the power dynamic and the sociology, they say it must be coming from all of the relevant discourses that inform that sociology. Therefore, you have to start tearing those apart and deconstructing them to get rid of the power. So they think that the way people talk about the actual science, it's a confusion, makes the sociology of that relevant science a problem, which is why you see people like in computers saying, well, we can't use you know phrases like master slave or whatever. You can't blacklist and whitelist things, because that language gives a subtle thing that that makes people uncomfortable of different races or sexes or genders or or sexualities or whatever. So we have to be very careful with our language because the language is going to structure how the sociology is. And that sociology is therefore becomes kind of the, the, the e-meter that lets you figure out if the language, the discourses themselves are poisoned. It's a very stupid way to think. It's really a very, it's like,
0: it's insulting too. It's insulting that's actually cuz it assumes everybody's a fucking bunch of pussies, right? With false consciousness. Yeah. Fuck all that shit, right? And we'll get to that later, especially when we talk about critical race theory, but you know, I believe that this whole approach has done a huge disservice for the so-called marginal folks, right? This isn't how you solve the problem, becoming neurotic and seeing boogeyman every fucking where. But let's wrap up the history part a little bit by doing a relatively brief review of your two principles and your four themes, and then let's move on.
1: Right. So, we kind of condensed all of that history into identifying two core principles of postmodern thought. The first is that knowledge is socially constructed, generally in service of power. And the second goes into that power aspect uh, more specifically and says that dominant groups within society have had the ability to construct knowledge and therefore their own power. And so there's an ethical imperative to take apart powerful discourses. So we called the first of those that there's no access to objective truth and knowledge is just socially constructed, the postmodern knowledge principle. And we called the second one that there's a political power valence to the whole project that needs to be unmade, the postmodern political principle. So those two core principles kind of define what postmodern thought is. And we wanted to, 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 to narrow it down to that so we could see in future generations of thought that those principles are still consistently showing up. We identify four core themes of, of postmodern thought and application. And those, if I can name them all in one go, those are the blurring of boundaries. So trying to take any categories that you might be able to think of, whether it's man and woman, whether it's knowledge and storytelling, and blur the boundaries between them so that everything kind of becomes the same thing. Second one is the almighty power of language or an exaggerated focus on the power of language. We just described that, the the belief that words almost work like magic spells to structure the sociology of a thing. A third one would be cultural relativism, which would be both in terms of um, morals. So ethical relativism, moral relativism, as you'd hear, you can't judge one culture there's ethics from the position of another culture, which it imported from some of the early moves in, in anthropology, and then also epistemological relativism, that you can't judge one knowledge system from within another knowledge system. So as they phrase it, though, ways of knowing, one way of knowing, like science, can't bear upon the validity of another way of knowing, like witchcraft, because uh, they're, they're relative and they're, they're products of their, their distinct cultures, and so the one can't speak to the other. And then the fourth is the dissolution. So we talked earlier about liberalism. It's the dissolution of the belief in a universal humanity and the dissolution of the belief in the autonomous individual. People are products of their social groups and wholly products of their social groups. And so it comes down to defining how those social groups are defined. With the original postmodernists, it would have been particular time and place and culture. So, you know, France 1960 would have been maybe a thing or France in the late medieval period would have been a thing. And this over time has evolved to where your uh, cultural groups have now been wedged into identity categories, though the original postmodernists wouldn't have thought that way. But the point was that you're not an individual. You're a French person in the medieval period. And that's how you think. Like there's this consciousness that goes with being in which culture at what time you happen to be. And then there's no universal humanity because one group can't genuinely understand each other because they have completely different ethics and completely different epistemologies so they can't even properly speak to one another. So there's this erasure of all of the fundamental principles of liberalism like understanding the world clearly, uh, universal principles of, of humanity and viewing people as individuals and saying that yeah, we can make some universal judgments about right and wrong and no you know we don't have to get tricked by word games. there, there is a fundamental reality
0: beneath it all that we can understand and talk about on shared terms. Yeah, very good. I often will describe it as people claiming that both witch doctors and Johns Hopkins Hospital are equally good at curing cancer. You know, what the fuck, right? How do people believe that horseshit? But as you say in the book, eventually kind of the internal contradictions of this abstract French theory driven postmodernism started to wind down. You know, people eventually said, all right, maybe it's intellectually cute and curious to probe, but it doesn't really lead anywhere useful. And then you talk about what you call the postmodernism's applied turn, where it was reformed in various ways and simplified, I would say, in some ways, and then move forward. So let's move quickly here to the postmodernism's applied turn.
1: Yeah, so that really happened. I mean, if you want to throw earmarks on it, you could say that postmodernism was 1970 and the applied turn was 1990. Uh, A lot happened in the mid and late 1980s. And what happened ultimately was that the remnants of the radical activists from the sixties and seventies, these Marcusean activists, the critical theorists, liberation, black power, radical feminists, they had lost a lot of their clout and they had lost a lot of their ability to argue because people just kind of got tired with the whole power dynamic thing all the time. And they found postmodern tools. And so you had a couple of, a couple of thinkers prominently in the late 1980s or mid 1980s who started to figure out, well, if we say that you can't deconstruct the experience of oppression, but if you start using postmodern tools to deconstruct power, now we have a very actionable understanding of both postmodern theory and critical theory that we can put into application. And they explicitly did that. They combined that very radical uh, critical approach with postmodern tools by setting aside the idea of universal deconstruction and saying, no, The experience of oppression is real and only somebody with privilege could possibly deconstruct it. So let's simplify postmodernism down to deconstructing those powers that create oppression and we take oppression off the table. So now you can't deconstruct race because race is a site of oppression. And so now you start to see this identity politics very explicitly becoming the cultural groups that are uh, relevant to the postmodern principles and themes.
0: That's kind of the world we're kind of living in now, right? This applied postmodernist epoch, or at least this disease that seems to be rampant in the world. So let's now move on to where you start to dig into the first of these applied postmodernist theories, which is postcolonial theory. And early in that chapter, you make a very key distinction, which, frankly, I was not aware of. So it was a good education for me, too which is the identity politics, when looked at deeply from theory, is actually deeply cynical. It appears, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the post-colonialists and critical race theory people don't actually believe in identity essentialism. You discovered that they used a term called strategic essentialism, which strikes me as a very cynical way to have proceeded. Could you perhaps you know, either correct me and or expand on this concept of strategic essentialism as one of the base concepts of applied postmodernism?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit to correct and a little bit to to say that you've got correct uh, already and expand upon. So the idea of strategic es- essentialism, I mean, it's a useful concept. It's a useful tool uh, to fight against power that that's c- basically controlling you and so it, it means to adopt the negative stereotypes about yourself that some powerful group is applying to you and to do so in a self-aware which means slightly ironic way to use it as a weapon of resistance to that power. So you could imagine for example, we could flash back to the 1950s and you have the you know stereotypical 1950s white boss talking, however about how he thinks black people are stupid and lazy or whatever and then he tells his black employee to go do whatever job go sweep the floor you know or whatever and then the black person responds well i don't know boss i'm too stupid and lazy and so that would be an example of using strategic essentialism to fight power and i think there's some legitimacy to it because it calls people out on on applying unjust stereotypes like everything it can go too far so the idea really got Defined by a post-colonial theorist named Gayatri Spivak in the mid 1980s. And Spivak was a upper caste Indian woman who decided to start writing about how horrendous colonialism was and um, really took a lot. I mean, she cites Foucault on, on nearly every page of her of her uh, work, also draws very heavily on Derrida. And Derrida is more relevant for this strategic essentialism because the idea is, oh, well, there's binary hierarchies of power in everything that, that we encounter in life. And so what strategic essentialism is, is that we're going to now preserve those hierarchies, but we're going to reverse the power. So we're going to flip it backwards. That's the way that Spivak characterized the idea and took it further. And so um, now, for example, if you say, "Well, there's a power dynamic between men and women," that you know men are dominant over women, she would say, "Well, we're going to preserve that hierarchy that men and women are different, but we're going to reverse the power. So now it's girl power. Now, me, now, now women are the ones that that are to have power. Women domination is great, and you can do this with whatever set of identity factors or whatever that you want to do. So it became this." site upon which they had to do two things. And the cynical part that you're pointing at is that they wanted to preserve the existing hierarchy, where if we compare that to liberalism, the point is to chip away at the meaningfulness of that hierarchy. They want to preserve the hierarchy, and then they want to try to reverse the direction of of power in it. And this actually, in some sense, is why as many people have noticed, and it, pardon my frustration with it, but the, the, the kind of social justice activists get literally fucking everything backwards, and it's because they're preserving the hierarchies and reversing the power. But the problem is that the hierarchy itself is the issue, and you can't just arbitrarily reverse every bit of power and create you know the change that you want. So with the post-colonial theorists, what they do is they said, well, that the West— used to say, we're, we're great and you're barbarous, we're smart and you're stupid, we're scientific and you're superstitious. The West is better than the East. And so the West constructs itself as, as superior and the East is inferior. And this could be extended to the global South as well. And then liberalism said, hey, maybe we should think of people as people wherever they live and try to work from there. And this, this apparently was intolerable to these radical activists who wanted to strategically essentialize. And they said, no, let's reconstruct it, that the East is the, the poor oppressed entity by the West and that the West is actually evil colonizers. But let's establish that the West did use science and it is the property of the West. And let's get this backwards completely so we can say, oh, they use their science to destroy Africa, which if anybody has any sense in their freaking head, if you want to get like working wells and you want to get a city up and operating, you've got to use science. So you're not helping freaking Africa by saying it's white stuff to do science. Um, But that's where it comes from. Preserve the hierarchy and flip the power, which is strategic essentialism, uh,
0: thanks to Gayatri Spivak. Yeah. Interesting. What a weird move. And it's so strange that people buy this stuff, right? It's like, what? You also talked in that section of the book about how decolonizing theorists, or fuck they are, now also have decided that philosophy is bad because it gives a special place to reason. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, the, the idea is that they, they genuinely believe that everything is a property of the culture that invented it. And so when you say that the Enlightenment took place in the European context, for whatever set of historical contingencies that led to that fact of history. When you say the enlightenment took place and in, in, in the elevation of reason, the development of scientific reasoning all happened in the European context, mostly by white people, mostly by men because of the other historical contingencies around those decisions. They, they believe that that locks white Western maleness into the scientific and reason bearing or philosophical processes and therefore those are the property of white Western men. And they're not the property of say black Africans or indigenous people in, in South America or whatever else. And therefore, <laughs> therefore those, those are properties that are are tied to a specific culture. And for, uh, it's so hard to even freaking explain this. It's so stupid. And so for say, People to go to Africa or to South America or to anywhere in the world that doesn't have science and try to teach them science is literally a colonial act of trying to change their culture to value white and Western things, rather than just trying to teach them very effective methods to understand the world. Coming to Africa to teach them to rely on reason, if that's what it was, would be seen as an act of colonial aggression that tries to erase African cultures that have always thought differently. It's in some sense in that way, very fucking conservative because it's like, no, leave the noble savages alone. Don't change anything about them, even if it would be to their benefit. You can't change that because that's, as they say, colonialism. It's so mental that it's
0: almost impossible to talk about without kind of just getting pissed off. I understand that exactly. And of course, what I love about it is how ignorant Some of the assumptions are even, you know, that reason is white, right? Anyone who knows anything about the history of Greek philosophy knows that it is believed with some reason that the antecedents of Greek philosophy where reason was finally defined, at least in such a way that it came into the Western tradition, actually came from Egypt, right? At least so it appears. And so it's actually an Egyptian invention that was refined and written down essentially by the Greeks. And further, for a long time, it was essentially the property of the Greeks and then to a lesser degree the Romans, but there were lots of white people that had never had any exposure to this kind of thinking, right? The Britons, the Celts, the Vikings, they never heard any of this horse shit until much later, you know, 1000 AD perhaps, that Aristotelian philosophy slowly start to penetrate Europe. So it came from Egypt, it was processed by the Greeks, it was refined a bit by the Romans, though not very much. And then... Was carried forth in a kind of flattened form by scholastic Catholicism and only gradually expanded around into allegedly the white realm. So, and then it expanded to the rest of the world. And why did it expand to the rest of the world? Well, those who listen to my show know that I have one word which I use as my razor for ideas, and that is are they useful, right? And as it turned out, reason is useful. <laughs> That's correct. And so to
1: understand how how off the track, because what you just described is absolutely correct. And to, to understand how off the track the thought process here in the, the whether we're going to call it social justice or post-colonial in this case, but it's all of the theories, how off the track it is it doesn't care all it cares about is who was able to apply it in in the service of what they call systemic power and that systemic power applies only in the current system which is post enlightenment progress i guess the modern world actually that which follows the late medieval period going forward so that's the only context and they say well who had these ideas and who was able to apply systemic power with them white people in a a Eurocentric context, mostly men. Therefore, these ideas are the province of white Western men and to use them and pushes white Western culture onto everybody else. Because again, following Foucault with his truth regimes, that established a truth regime that was supposed to be fitting for the European context in the early and mid uh, modern periods. And then they decided that they were going to try to force it upon the rest of the world which was other cultures that couldn't have been despoiled by such terrible things as useful reason and applicable science. Uh, it's such, it's like, it's not even just a stupid way to think and just a pr- terribly narrow way to think. It's again, very conservative in a weird way, like that the world should have remained in its pre-modern feudal state. And any aberration from that, any deviation from that is an oppression that's intolerable and and has to be unmade. That's genuinely their thought process because they're obsessed with the systemic power that getting right answers to to questions about the world provided Europeans, primarily white European men.
0: Yeah, it's fucking horseshit. A, A good friend of mine is CTO of a company that's providing solar electricity to remote Villages in Africa. And I can tell you from listening to him that the libido for having electricity in remote villages in Africa is huge, right? These people don't feel oppressed by having electricity for the first time and then satellite internet and being connected to the world, being able to look something up on Google Scholar that's hugely empowering to them. And who the fuck these people are? Here's another one of my thoughts a little bit about neocolonialism, colonialism theory, whatever the hell it is. The Brits. England was the great colonizing power, right? Everybody likes to criticize the English. But hey, what happened to the English, right? They had the Brightons way back yonder who were attacked and almost exterminated by the Celts who were invaded by the Romans when the Romans started to collapse and withdraw in 400 AD. Soon thereafter, the Angles and the Saxons from lowland Germany attacked and substantially took over England. The Danes came down and captured the northern Third of England Dane law for a couple hundred years, then the Normans came in and imposed their truly hideous occupation and built a whole new aristocracy that suppressed the shit out of the English and so the uh, history of England has been wave after wave after wave of colonization suppression domination etc and yet they seem to come out all right out of it
1: yeah it took me a long time to figure out how these people think it really took me a long time to figure out this mystery uh, and the, the answer is, is that all of that stuff doesn't matter because systemic power in the modern era hadn't been invented yet. They really think that they only care like the world, the beginning of time for them. And sometimes I see shit they post on Instagram, these kind of memes and shit they post. Really, they say words like the since the beginning of time, white people have had all the power in the world. So they literally think that the beginning of time was the enlightenment and the the beginnings of the scientific revolution and the development of philosophy. So anything that happened before that might have been like colonization, but it wasn't real colonization because it wasn't systemic. And they actually think this way because the only thing they give a shit about is the prevailing social order. And for them, that is the entire world. Nothing else has any meaning. So they have, they would, they take things like that and twist them around and have a weird explanation for them if challenged. Like, for example, with the Greeks, well, if the Greeks developed reason and they got it from the Egyptians and then white people had it, white people must have stolen it. That would be the way that they would would look at that rather than in any any gacious view of how things actually happened throughout history and how cultures actually interact. They can't, therefore... It, understand that the norms of human history have been colonization, empire building, destroying your neighbors, enslaving whoever you could get a hold of, raping their women. These have been the norms of human history, and it's only been in this modern era that they hate and see as having systemic power. As a result of actually having something like, I guess, systemic power, through the power of reason and science and better ethics and questioning ourselves and, and setting up rule of law. It's only that we've been through that, that we've been able to get away from those horrors of history, but they would say, nope, systemic power wasn't there when the Mongols conquered basically everything. They didn't have systemic power. They only had regular power. So it doesn't count. It's not the same thing, but what the Europeans did starting in the late 16th century or 15th century was systemic and that makes it completely different and that makes it intolerable. That's uh, genuinely, you couldn't possibly have a more narrow idiotic and conservative view of history. and I don't mean conservative like you know conservatives would be proud to think of, but in the terms of kind of the worst ramifications of what conservatism can mean, you couldn't have a worse one than this this woke thing that calls itself progressive. Mm,
0: Yeah, let's jump into a topic I have later in my topic list, but this is actually a good time to introduce it. The way this social justice capitalized, which is a term of art you define in the book, approaches the world is essentially hermetically sealed. It's a series of theories and arguments ungrounded with either facts or data. And in fact, as we just discussed here, they actively ignore and repress the application of historical analysis beyond their own little world, empirical facts, data of any sort. And it kind of reminds me of like medieval Catholicism, where, you know, to to doubt in any way or to bring evidence in any way is actually sinful. And to my mind, that strikes me as the most dangerous than the most absurd thing about this phenomenon.
1: It is. It's a It's a renewal of, I mean, you could actually, if we wanted to do the whole game that, you know, the academic lingo game, we could call this neo-medievalism. It is an an attempt to return to medievalism and out of modernity. So it's an attempt to reverse the course of the last 500 years. And it is hermetically sealed in the sense that because it thinks in terms only of these cultural knowledges, that any criticism that comes at it must be coming from a place that doesn't properly understand it. And so it it can dismiss any criticism. Now it just simply calls it by names like racist or whatever. It's the application of power uh, about race or the application of power about sex. And that those are baked into that white Western hegemonic culture of of knowing and and being and, and thinking in the world. And so what people really need to take home from this is that you know, we capitalize the S and the J for social justice. This is a Different way of thinking entirely. It is a completely different worldview. It has it, and this is the core part. It has a completely different epistemology, in other words, relationship to knowledge, and has a completely different set of ethics. And those two principles we laid down in the book, the the postmodern knowledge principle, explain their epistemology. It's no longer truth and falsity that matter. It is instead. Whether or not the idea is problematic and how it accords with somebody's lived experience, specifically of occupying an oppressed social position, where those have been defined by the hierarchy of the theory. And the postmodern uh, political principle defines the ethics. Some cultures have been systemically oppressed, others have been unfairly advantaged, and we have to flip those over. That is In essence, their epistemology and ethics, they have a completely different way of interacting with the world that's as foreign as if some, you know, aliens that have never seen sexually reproducing species and don't have any idea of how anything works were to suddenly land and they have a completely different ethical and completely different epistemological
0: system. It's very difficult to understand that. Indeed. And once you do get your head around, I tell you, I will tell you, this book helped me see it even more clearly than I did before. It's like, what the fuck, right? It's you know, both insane and dangerous at the same time. Before we leave post-colonial theory, let's talk about one of the most bizarre manifestations of it, which is what you called, I think they probably call it too, research justice.
1: <laughs> yep. The most blatant attempt to cook the book's uh, in their favor that, that I'm kind of aware of. Uh, research justice is the idea that research has systemically excluded certain ideas and certain voices, whether that's because of re- methodological rigor or whether that's because of actual power dynamics doesn't matter because the view from postmodernism is that it's all power dynamics. So they say, well, historically, you know, these white Western men came up with science. These white Western men defined the canon of, say, literature. So we're reading Shakespeare we're, you know, we're reading Milton, we're reading Bacon, we're reading Mark Twain, we're, you know, we're reading um, all of these white Western men who who were the educated people and the aristocrats, I guess, in some sense, that had the time and, and energy to write, uh, if that's even the right way to put it. And so they, they say that that unfairly biases all of our knowledge in the scholarly canon to white Western people. So obviously, their politics must be baked into it, because that's the fundamental assumption behind the whole thing. So what we need to do now is we need to fix that. So we need to stop citing any white Western men. We need to cite black women in particular, and lots of them. We need to cite marginalized voices. Uh, We need to stop teaching from white curricula, white Western curricula. We need to insert more materials from other contexts. And in fact, we need to minimize the amount of uh, white Western materials as they define it so that we can make up for that. And so you should only cite, again, Black Scholar. Here's an example, an explicit example of citing that. They said that Patricia Hill Collins' formulation in Black Feminist Thought in 1990 relies very heavily on Foucault's concepts of power, but it would be against research justice or against intersectionality specifically to cite Michelle Foucault when there's now a Black woman who you could cite instead. And so you have to cite the Black woman. So one's identity now becomes this site for... Creating citations and 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 what you're going to read, what you're going to teach, what you're going to put in the curriculum, and you can see what's going on because all of those create professional opportunities for people. Oh, my papers have been cited this many times. My papers have not been cited that many times, and so the it, it is in a deliberate attempt to cook the books such that the activists, because it's not going to be any black people. Don't get don't don't be confused. Any black women, any black woman who disagrees is not getting cited. Let me tell you right now. It's it's a deliberate attempt to cook the academic books and to skew the academic canon so that the activists who have these identity markers um, get more reputational standing within scholarship, whereas everybody else gets less. Uh, and you can you can imagine why they would want to do that because that's what we turn to to understand the world. And we say, "Oh, is there a study?" I keep getting asked now. Is there a study showing that their scholar that, that their their diversity programs don't work? I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course there's not. They're not going to publish that.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting and on the other hand, as we know, the legacy effects of systemic racism, which is real, have, you know, limited to a significant degree certain minority groups from participating in the game of science. And it's a good thing. And, you know, I'm involved in some boards of advisors at academic institutions, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how to recruit underrepresented minorities. That's a good thing. But to stipulate it as a law, as a rule that you must only quote people, that's nuts, right? It's like, how the hell does anybody believe that?
1: It's particularly bad in the sciences or my own field of mathematics, where in math, it's the proof is the proof. That's it. That's the whole thing if you have the proof, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't actually matter if a computer came up with it. If you have the proof, the thing is proved and whoever proved it, proved it, and it doesn't matter. And that's the basis of, you know, the getting say an academic paper in mathematics. In science, it's the same thing. It's do you have the result or don't you have the result? And to say that, you know, well, now we have to start skewing this and citing by race or by gender starts to massively undermine that principle that it's whether or not you have the proof, it's whether or not you have the result. And it doesn't matter who got the proof and it, because the proof is true independently of anybody or that the, uh, that, that the result is correct independently of anybody. Uh, undermining that belief and turning that belief into another side of politics undermines the ability to rely upon math and science to, to, to do things in the world.
0: Is that corruption actually hit mathematics?
1: How could that be? It's not hit research mathematics yet, though I started to see the calls for it. It has hit mathematics education hard, very hard. There are actual programs in, I hear from teachers all the time in my email, but there are actually programs that have been uh, installed under, under the heading of mathematics under a broader curriculum of ethnic studies in say the city of Seattle, But also now, I just was talking with somebody this morning that it's going to be all throughout, unless it gets stopped, it'll be all throughout the state of California, that there'll be the requirement to to put a social justice focus in math education. And it it says things like that the point is going to be to make math less individualistic and more collectivist. How do you how do you determine what's a right answer in math or more importantly, who gets to determine it? There was even an outcry on Twitter last week with a bunch of freaking math educators and professionals and even scholars trying to argue that two plus two doesn't equal four because it subjects other ways, other possible values to exclusion. And I'm not exaggerating that. You know, <laughs> Like, what the fuck are you people doing? And the the vector was pure postmodernism too. If you want to know, they said, well, if you look in base three, that you would write two plus two equals one, one in base three, but one, one in base three, what we would read is 11 doesn't mean 10 plus one or 11. It means three plus one. That's what base three means. And so it's like, it's literally, they tricked themselves with a fucking pun on two different ways to write the number four. And they're like, that means there are other possible values. I wish I was making that shit up. I'm so fucking mad about that that it's like I can't linger on it too long because I just start swearing at random. And it's like I can't believe these are people with fucking master's degrees teaching mathematics and designing mathematics curricula that our states and cities are actually implementing. And then I get these messages like I'm a junior high math teacher and I keep getting these directives. We have to put social justice into the core of our math education program. So, yeah, math. then I see these fucking mathematicians and I'm not exaggerating this and the notices of the AMS, the American Mathematical Society, writing stuff like exactly what I was just describing a moment ago. They're writing shit like oh, well, if there's a problem in the community around mathematics or if there's a problem in mathematics education, maybe we should be asking the question if the problem's actually coming from math itself and how we engage with math itself and what we consider to be objectivity in math. And then there's all these articles out there now about we need to get away from the presumed objectivity of mathematics. So it's, it's not in like research math now, but it's coming and it will because it poisons fucking everything. If they're questioning two plus two equals four with master's degrees, like I don't even know where you
0: go from there. That's a pretty good one. If you could send me the link to that tweet, I'd love to follow up on that at a later date. I'm going to interject this here again. It's later in my list, but we're getting short on time. And I think this is a hugely important topic, and I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. How many of the people out there that are mouthing these things do you think actually have the disease versus those who feel compelled by the bureaucratic power held by the disease to pretend or act as if they
1: believe it. So we have to separate the world into the, I mean, it's it's kind of like, I guess, a tautology, I was going to say, into the people who are the scholars of this stuff uh, and the real activists. So the ones who believe it, and I think that nearly all of them believe it. And then the people who are being, you know, broader academics. So I get emails from academics literally every day, and I mean lots of them most days, saying, I agree with you and your take, and I just wanted to let you know I support you, but I have to do so in private because I have to keep my head down. So I, you know, I play the part, I do my act. I pretend that I support this stuff when I'm at work so I don't lose my job because, you know, I have somebody has to be there for the kids or somebody has to be there for my kids. You know, I have to keep my job. So there's a lot of people out there who are actually pretending who are not actually activists and they just kind of go along with it. I don't think you'll find them being very strident very often. As for the scholars themselves, the scholars themselves believe this wholeheartedly. Um, Just like a long time ago, Christopher Hitchens was asked, how many of these pastors do you really think believe all this crazy Jesus stuff that they're saying? And Christopher Hitchens said, you know, there's always some grifters. There's always some. But that said, as a group and talking in averages, these are the most painfully sincere people I think I've ever heard of or met in my life. And that's true here. These people don't even have a sense of humor. They don't laugh about anything. They think laughing at things is wrong. And so these people are painfully sincere. Like, so if you ask me about any of the big ones out there that are making mad money off of this, like Robin D'Angelo or uh, Ibram Kendi, their bestseller books right now, do they believe it? I'm like, oh yeah, the 100%. They, they are all in on this. This is their faith. This is their worldview. This is their core of how they think about things you can see when they 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 butt up against reality and their eyes kind of cross a little bit and they don't know how to handle it so you can tell that they're grappling with the fact that the thing that they believe doesn't quite work and um you see this a lot so the people who are actually activists and scholars in this believe it wholeheartedly but a lot of people probably the majority of people supporting it fall into one one of two groups one is like i described those academics who are too afraid to disagree So they pretend and another is kind of uninformed people like some friends of my kids that have said things like, yeah, you know, I'm sharing the hashtags and the reason is because everybody does. They don't have the slightest idea what any of it means, but you got to say defund the police. And it's like, well, everybody's saying it. And there's a lot of people who are just not critically thinking about what the fuck they're saying and they're saying this stuff and carrying water for uh, extremely radical people thinking that it's generally good. The third category actually should add is people who think it it can't possibly be as bad as the things they're actually saying. They can't actually mean it. So I'm going to give it a lot of charity. I'm going to reinterpret it for them and say, oh, well, they just mean this much more sensible thing that is not what they mean. And they say over and over again that it's not what they mean. So there's a lot of people who support it because they are unable to take them at their word at all, even though they say, you know, on like almost every page of everything they write, how they hate the system. The systemic, systemic power comes from the system and the system needs to be torn down and we need to have a revolution. I even saw a video for like teachers today that like the first thing that it showed was how do we start a revolution in teaching? It's like they're not they're calling for revolution in everything they do. They mean it.
0: Yep, yeah, they are true anti-liberals. Right. And if we don't believe that, we're fools, frankly. We'll talk a little bit later about what we might be able to do about it. Let's move on to your next topic. But in the interest of time, let's try to hit it quickly. And that's queer theory. And I got to say that the liberation of homosexuals is actually one of the great wins from liberalism. I recall I grew up as a working class kid. My dad dropped out of high school after ninth grade. My mother left home when she was 14. And I had the usual illiberal views about homosexuality growing up. You didn't almost need to speak about it. It was unspeakable almost, right? But I had the good luck to go to work for a publishing company in the Bay Area as a young man, met a bunch of gay folks, actually became friends with them, marched in the second gay pride parade in San Francisco, and at a very young age, overthrew my legacy homophobia and said, it's ridiculous. You know, it's a violation of liberal universalism. I didn't have those words then. Gay people should have all rights of everybody else, and they're just fine. What the fuck? And it's clear to me that they're the way they are because that's the way they are, right? And yet, that seeming triumph of universal liberalism, which happened remarkably quickly from you know, Stonewall to gay marriage being legalized, was only 30 years. Somehow, all that has morphed into this crazy shit.
1: Well, the crazy shit's always kind of been there. Uh, A lot of people don't know that the queer theorists actually opposed gay marriage from the beginning, and they saw it as a a huge loss for their cause. Um, So you can see, again, how they get everything backwards, like I was saying about the colonials. So the deal with, with queer theory is that anything that's normal or normative must be constraining people and holding them down in some bad way, so you have to get rid of it. So if you make gay marriage legal... Now, being gay is more normative than it was before, so gay people aren't radical, uh, divergent things from society any longer, and you take away their radical power and you sweep them up into the normative side of society, and that's a failure and that's a loss. So it's a radical rejection of anything being allowed to be considered normal. And it's a it's a radical rejection of the idea that categories can be defined as being stable. So to queer something is to make the categories around it seem unstable and laughable. So in this case, you know, you could say the category of woman. So you could look at lesbians, for example, who are in the L L of the LGBT thing. And you could say, well, lesbians are women who are attracted to women. So you have to have a stable category of woman for lesbian to make sense. And the queer people would say, no, that's not right. Uh, You can't have a stable category of woman. You have to break that all down. And it's just everybody is a person and everybody can do whatever they want. And so you can see it's like the thing you just said made it work. Oh, well, they're they are people who happen to be how they are. And that's fine. And so some people are gay. Get over it. No big deal. It's ridiculous to think otherwise. Queer theory gets that backwards, too, because that would make it normal and normative. And that's not okay. They have to make it. Everything has to say queer and weird or else it's not acceptable. Interesting.
0: And then, of course, the most recent manifestation, I don't know how far back this goes, is this literally insane view that sex itself is not real. What Judith Butler said, quoted, you quoted in the book, if the immutable character of sex is contested, perhaps this construction called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. And perhaps, indeed, it was always already gender with, with the It was always already gender. Anyway, fuck all that. I can't even read this shit.
1: It's so fucking hard to read Judith Butler. She's almost impossible.
0: What the hell, right? My head hurts from reading it. But anyway, basically, bottom line, she's claiming, well, maybe sex itself is as socially constructed as gender roles. I mean, who could believe such nonsense?
1: Right. So that's the idea. So the the feminists really wanted to deconstruct the idea of gender roles being tied. So there's maybe some women don't want to have female gender roles. Okay, fine, whatever. But then they went further and said, so gender itself has nothing to do with sex. And we're going to completely say that gender is 100% social constructed. And that's already you're like, um... Something's getting a bit weird. And then these queer theorists, kind of starting with Judith Butler with that question we quoted, started to say, well, maybe if we really want to break down the idea of gender roles and we really want to break down the idea that gender has any concrete meaning, what we really need to do is break down the idea that sex has any meaning at all, other than the imposition, say, of some medical terminology that that doctors put on people's birth certificates. And so, yeah, it, it's this this move, it's like this progressive move from gender roles being socially constructed to gender itself being socially constructed to having to get more and more and more radical to break down any normative categories to say sex itself is socially constructed. And maybe that's how it really works. And you can like, you know, you can picture your mind exploding like, wow, maybe that is a, what a, what a radical idea. Whoa. And then, meanwhile, the lesbians are over here like, what the fuck? We're women who like women. And, you know, you're losing us here. And so, yeah, that's queer theory, man. That's queer theory Just make anything that's normal, like busted up, make it weird.
0: Yeah, that's weird. I mean, again, at one level, I sympathize a little bit with we need room for diversity of ways of being in the world. But how is it that people get to these insane extrapolations?
1: Well, they believe that the ideas themselves have lots of power that structure society. Again, there's that deep vein of structuralism and post-structuralism that fed into the postmodern way of thinking. And they also take a lot from the critical theory view that there's these hegemonic forces that are tied up in it. So in other words, our postmodern political and uh, knowledge principles come into, into bearing. So they believe that if we had, say, biological science saying that there are actually men and women and that they're... Physiologically different from one another. So, in other words, biological sex is real. Some asshole could use that to justify sexism. So, because some asshole could use it to justify sexism, you have to get rid of it. It contains the seeds of hegemonic power. So, it's bad. So, we're not going to believe that. And you have this whole rash in the early queer theory literature and some of the feminist literature around it, as queer theory was kind of becoming ascendant, saying that what we really have to do is get away from the ideas of true and false, even though it's easier to understand and start going into this very queer direction because it's more politically actionable. And that's what we need to focus
0: on is what's politically useful for our cause. How cynical, as you say, right? Before we move on from this topic, I'd like to point people to my friend Heather Haying, Heather E. Haying, at Heather E. Haying on Twitter, who has said some remarkably intelligent things about you know, the insanity of claiming that sex is not real. So I would point you to her Twitter stream and her appearances on podcasts, et cetera, is a very good grounding in sense-making about this topic. Let's move on to the next area that you talk about, which is critical race theory and intersectionality. You know, we certainly have to acknowledge the hypocrisy about race under the Enlightenment. We talked about before Thomas Jefferson People don't know this too much. Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln-Douglas debates famously said that, you know, the black man will never be the social equivalent of the white man, nor should he be, et cetera. There was a lot of retrograde beliefs and absurd biological explanations about racial differences and cultural differences, et cetera. But liberalism has been a, a ratchet to gradually bring ourselves into alignment with our enlightenment beliefs. And the unjust treatment of racial minorities, especially in the American context, African Americans, was real and is still real to a degree, but vastly less so than it was before. Young people today don't remember. I actually remember seeing whites-only signs on water fountains in the early 60s in Virginia, less than an hour's drive from Washington, D.C. Tremendous strides have been made. And the liberalism was continuing at least to improve all this until this invention of identity politics and the backlash, which has started to occur. I've been predicting since the 1990s that this ever-growing ratchet of identity politics would inevitably lead to the largest identity of all, European Americans, catching the disease as well and asserting themselves using the same rhetoric. And that's what we're seeing, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, we don't want that to happen more than it already is beginning to. And so really, this is something I consider to be a bit of an emergency uh, to try to take away, to to make people understand where the, the critical race mindset on this comes from and take that away from them. So to kind of give a very short history, we trace this in the book of critical race theory. It began from the claim that in the late 16th century going forward, that these biological notions of race and this new definition of race came into the world specifically in order to do racism and slavery and colonialism, and this is true. The, it's it's just true. Uh, the way we thought of race, kind of in that racist past you were just talking about, did come into to, to the picture at that point, and it was a social construction of race that was backed up by the authority of bogus early science and bad claims. Uh, that were white supremacists in nature. And so the summary of that is that you can say that these people who wanted to do slavery and colonialism using whatever tools they had available to them at the time put a lot of social significance into racial categories. And that ratchet you're talking about with liberalism has been ratcheting it out. Click, 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 click. You know, one turn of the ratchet after another. Let's take social significance out of racial categories until we finally get to the point where we can say things like this is this is a person who happens to be black, this is a person who happens to be Hispanic, this is a person who happens to be Asian, and their their identity is not the first thing anymore. So we're reducing the social significance in racial categories, which we generally would call color blindness. When Martin Luther King said that he wants to he wants to live in a world he has a dream that his four little children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the contents of their characters. He's talking about removing the social significance from racial categories. And then all of a sudden you have these identity politicians who are of course active in parallel to uh, King, the the black power movement, Malcolm X, et cetera, that were, were pushing this kind of positive black identity with a capital B who wanted to keep the social significance in race and reverse the power dynamic assert black power and keep that there. And so, and then in the 1990s, you have these people that picked up postmodern theory, specifically Kimberly Crenshaw, and she has in a paragraph in her most famous paper called Mapping the Margins that we have to take an identity first approach. There's something more powerful and more meaningful to the sentence, I am black, than to the sentence, I am a person who happens to be black because that second sentence puts their universal humanity first rather than their identity, which is not useful for identity politics of the radical sort. She then finishes that paper by saying, we're going to link that to postmodern theory to do deconstruction of the power that's oppressing black people. So what you have then in the long arc is a history where racial categories were invented, social significance was put into them in order to do racist things. Liberalism ratcheted that out over a long and painful history. And then you have these idiot activists come along and say, you know what, let's put social significance back into racial categories and see what happens. That's how we're really going to get liberation.
0: And here we are. Yeah, I've been long arguing that America missed a wonderful opportunity in the late 60s to unravel our uniquely bad black-white problems, you know, Martin Luther King actually was on the right track. He argued for essentially the gradual growing bourgeoisization of black people, right? And in fact, people forget this. Remember the Monahan Report back in the late 60s, where he gave the famous report on the decline of the black family and the risks that made for racial progress and Daniel Moynihan, the liberal Democrat from New York who happened to be working for Nixon at the time. And it's now considered racist, horrible, et cetera. But I went back and did some research on it. Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, and Martin Luther King himself supported that report. That was at a time when out-of-wedlock births, which was really what Moynihan was focusing on amongst Black Americans, was 22 percent. Now it's 70 percent. And it seems to me that this black power thing and black authenticity thing, which happened right around that time, diverted what could have been a gradual melding of black Americans into mainstream society away from bourgeoisization and towards God knows what. I'm not really 100% sure what the alternative really was, but was essentially a precursor to this critical race theory thing you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's a really unfortunate situation that, um, again, we kind of can dip back to that postmodern view, or again, we can look at it from the critical theory perspective of you know cultural hegemony and, and oppressed groups versus oppressor groups. But w- within the, the postmodern conception that got infused into this line of thinking by Kimberly Crenshaw very specifically and some other black feminists around the same time, you have this idea that each culture is its own kind of cultural island. It has its own knowledges. It has its own approaches to, to, to knowing things it has its own ways of being. And those can't be questioned from the outside. And any attempt to change those is an imposition of power. So when you combine that with that critical theory view, that impositions of power are the problem that need to be flipped over, all of a sudden you start to have this strong push for multiculturalism rather than a pluralism where uh, you know you might call pluralism more of a melting pot approach. But people can still have their own cultural identities, but you're not asserting it as like the primary thing, which is a divisive thing. Humans are actually evolved to be tribal animals, and we're not really good at people erecting cultural barriers and then feeling like those people are people that we can easily relate to. Drawing those lines intentionally is one of the biggest mistakes that critical race theory is making and then when you see specifically the kinds of things that you're talking about that they want to, they want to define black culture as something that's in opposition to white culture because they claim that white culture is intrinsically anti-black in a very cynical and pessimistic description so they define black culture in opposition to that so literally today you know in the past few weeks i've just seen things coming out saying that productivity reliability loyalty punctuality these kinds of values, plus the science, the reason that we've talked about before, are all white supremacy. I've even heard people in, the, uh, in a task force assembled by the Washington State Legislature, an equity task force they ran back in January, saying that trying to keep a meeting schedule and get through an agenda is white supremacy. Trying to be productive is white supremacy. So when you start trying to define a culture in opposition to, as you phrased it earlier, stuff that works that most people don't want to associate with a race at all, you're going to start creating massive problems. And then when you start drawing these hard lines and saying, you know, this is black culture and it's different than your culture and we're not the same and don't try to, don't try to impose on us. That would be colonizing our culture. You're just creating a recipe for disaster and failure. It's really like the exact wrong way to think about everything. It's so frustrating.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, the the one you gave the example pissed me off some years ago, the argument against punctuality. So for fun, I wrote an agent-based model that modeled a company and you could set how much punctuality was in the employees. And if you assume that the, the work of the company was significantly done by people synchronizing and having meetings, you move the slider on punctuality and the effectiveness of the organization dropped radically. And there was a point where it was a phase change where nothing got done. Right. So merely on the empirical dimension of utility, punctuality clearly has values. God damn it. Right. And anyone that can't understand that is just fucking stupid. I guess they're not necessarily stupid. Some of these fuckers have PhDs, right? Which means they got an IQ of at least 125, probably. But the disease does something to their thinking that they can't even think through the fact that you know means of production that involve people synchronizing in time. Must lose major effectiveness if we don't all honor the value of punctuality
1: yeah they um, unfortunately human human beings the smarter you are the more able you are to convince yourself of your own bullshit and so often I mean this is probably why this crap festered in the academy among a few other problems and values uh, unique to the academy but the ability to believe—I mean, there's a saying, you know, something so what, what is it? Something so stupid only an academic could believe it, or something like that. Because you're you're more able to convince yourself of your own bullshit, your post hoc rationalization, and your theoretical ability to convince yourself of nonsense is higher when you're smarter um, than when you're not. So uh, here we are. So you know, stupid in a way. It's like I used to get called too smart for my own good when I was a kid all the time, and I never knew what that
0: meant. <laughs> I do now. Interesting. Yeah, there's some interesting psychological lab results which showed that the more intelligent on an IQ test a person is, the more susceptible they are to confirmation bias, which is interesting. Sure, because they can make the argument really quickly for why it must be true. (laughs) Exactly. They can rationalize and basically vibrate off their emotions and figure it out. It's interesting. Now, it's talking about psychology. As I was reading in your rather depressing write-up of Critical Race Theory, it struck me that this has got to be bad for the mental health of the groups that are being allegedly advocated for, right? To see that the whole world is against you, that every fine structure of reality is there to fuck you over in a fairly permanent way, it's gotta be bad for your personal empowerment, right? You know, I would turn that around and say, yes, we still have some legacy of racism, much less than we used to. The number I use is 8% of white Americans are still type one racists, meaning that race is an essentialist criteria and that there are good races and bad races. I use the long-term social science general survey data on are you opposed to intermarriage or somebody close to you? It was 90% in 1960. It's 8% today amongst white folks. That's tremendous progress. And the barriers that exist are overcomable. If you look at this again, empirical data, I know it's, you know it's a violation to use empirical data against critical race theory, but you look at how much discrimination, let's say African-Americans suffer in the job market, It's around the level they probably need to go on one more job interview than white folks to get an equivalent job, which is unfortunate and wrong, but isn't enough to stop you from making progress in the world. In housing, you probably got to look at one, maybe two more apartments to overcome, yes, racism in rental housing. These are not obstacles that will stop you. They're friction, but they're not a pervasive system that fucks you over so you can't possibly succeed. The rhetoric of critical race theory, if I were one of the alleged beneficiaries of this perspective, would be psychologically devastating. It is.
1: It's uh it's like the opposite of cognitive behavioral therapy, as you know, psychologist Jonathan Heights pointed out. It's it's literally like reverse cognitive behavioral therapy. It makes you more sensitive to slights, it tends to make you want to catastrophize, it leads you to believe that the world's out to get you, and so it increases paranoia and cynicism, and pessimism and nihilism. It's, it's exactly the opposite of the thing you want to do. Now I keep hearing from, from psychologists, in fact, that are writing to me and they're talking about how their own profession is falling apart. Or I hear from people who are in therapy and they, maybe there's a cross-racial therapy therapy situation and now it's like all power dynamics. So now you can't even resolve the problems that are, it's creating. It's like this perfect storm of making a mess that it can, can't clean up and then that it can use as further fuel to make a bigger mess. The thing is, it's it's completely fucking backwards in every way you could possibly imagine. So I often find myself saying, even if every bit of their diagnosis was correct, and I don't think it is, I think most of it's wrong, but even if it were, their prescriptions are all 100% backwards. Their answers for what to do with the problem are 100% backwards.
0: Yep. Certainly strikes me as the case. I mean, frankly, I'm kind of old school. My advice would be the same one as the traditional black grandmother, which is, yes, there's some discrimination against you. You got to work a bit harder to beat Whitey, right? So get out there and study, be diligent, be at work five minutes before the hour, be respectful, even if you're a little cynical about authority, which, hell, I was. I was a, I've always had a problem with authority, goddammit, right? And that great advice from the traditional black grandmother is exactly the right way that African-Americans can overcome the residual racism that exists in the world and get their place at the table.
1: It's, it pisses me off. I'm like, I'm the racist because, OK, if I admit, yeah, there's there, there is this friction you're talking about. In society. But I believe that black people can actually succeed against that friction and you don't and I'm the racist. Like, fuck you people.
0: Exactly. In fact, I've tried the rhetorical term of calling these critical race theory people racists, right? And as you can imagine how well they respond to that.
1: (laughs) (sighs) We can't be racist. Ah, power dynamics. But you're you're holding black people down. So that's by your definition that's racist. It's like, shit, man.
0: Fuck <laughs> uh, this. Is so, it's just, I mean, this is like Alice down the rabbit hole. Unfortunately, we're running out of time here. This is also a very interesting section on feminism and gender studies. But let's skip to your thoughts and your co-author's thoughts on what the hell can we do about this? Is there anything that people of good faith who still adhere to liberalism and the idea of the individual and the universal shared humanity of all humans what can we do against this tide of crazy shit well first let's go ahead
1: and i said it's 100% backwards just a second ago let's let's walk that back to 99. a whole bunch of nines the one thing that it's saying that makes any sense is could you listen better yes we can thank you And then everything else that they say is wrong. So we can listen better. And then what we actually have to do if we want to do something about this is a number of things. Number one, we can listen better. Number two, we have to actually start reminding people our schools have systematically not been teaching American civics for at least two decades. They just don't teach it. People have to understand how liberal systems work. So we have to start asserting liberalism. We've been able to be comfortable for a very long time that we just assumed liberal principles. We have to assert them. We have to remind people what they are. We have to get people to make the arguments for them. So we have to go out and assert them. If you actually want to fight it on a practical level, you have to show up. You have to realize that first, there aren't all that many of the, well, until two months ago, there weren't all that many of these people pushing this very hard, but they're all activists. They show up. They want bureaucratic positions. They want to be on the committee. They don't have other important stuff going on. So they're going to make time to be on the committee, to be in the, in the bureaucracy, to, to show up to every school board meeting. If you aren't going to show up, you're ceding that ground to a relatively small number of activists. I can't tell you how many school board meetings I watched in the past two years where this stuff's getting ramrodded into our schools. And there's nine people and there's something like that in the room. It's like, where's anybody who disagrees? Well, who are the only people showing up? Who are the only people who have time? Who are the only people who are interested? Activists. And that's what you're up against. So if you want to push back, you've got to get informed. You've got to be able to understand their jibber jabber. The book helps with that, of course. I've got the website New Discourses dedicated to solving that problem right now as best I can. You've got to understand the alternative. You've got to understand basic liberal civics and principles. You've got to understand why we have rule of law, why we do due process, why the scientific processes are important and valuable and how they help people don't hurt them. Why objective standards take cronyism out of the picture more than they put it into the picture? You have to understand stuff like that. And then you have to show the fuck up and say it. Somebody has to show up and say it. If nobody's going to show up and say it, you're going to have 10 activists show up and the 10 activists are going to make the entire decision for your city. And then what? Now it's policy. Now it's a much harder fight. Start getting informed, get organized and show up in numbers, Ideally.
0: And I would add also, don't back down to the motherfuckers, right? Online recently I actually put together a good faith discourse on meta it was called the meta discussion about race. How do we talk about race? You can imagine how well that actually turned out, right? We got invaded by a bunch of quasi-Maoists and you know, entirely innocent, I would argue, good faith, correct way of thinking about the world was we should acknowledge current racism that still exists, even at lower levels than formerly, but we should aim for a future of colorblindness. I defined it very carefully where one's color had no more impact on your life's trajectory than the color of your eyes. And I made it very clear that we were talking about the future. I got attacked vehemently for the word colorblind and the notion, right? But I did not back down, motherfucker, right? I came back with guns blazing. I thought I did a pretty damn good job of justifying my position. But of course, their style online is very, very fucking vicious. But I think we just got to say, hey, we're fighting the equivalent of Nazis and fucking communists here. And so we should not hold back and not be intimidated by these motherfuckers.
1: Yeah. The, the thing that they have is name calling primarily and trying to make you feel stupid. Like they have all these fancy definitions and trying to say, oh, well, you said colorblind. So you're, you've are you committed some deep offense. They're not telling you that they made up a new definition for colorblind that, that works for their purposes. Nobody in reality, except for you know people who aren't thinking about it very much, believes that colorblind means I don't see race. So race is completely irrelevant and it has no impact in the world. That's what they try to get you to believe about colorblindness. No, what it means is, What you said about it has no impact on the trajectory of your life, that you're not putting what it means is in the formal language that I used earlier, is you're not putting social significance into the racial category that has some determinant effect on somebody's abilities to have access to society. That's all it fucking means. They're playing a word game and using two meanings of the word at once to try to call you a name. Well, guess what? Once you learn that that's the game, you don't feel uncomfortable. They're like, that's racist to say that. And you're like, no, it wasn't. That's it. No, it wasn't. It wasn't actually. And they just stick to it. They have nothing else that they can say. The only problem is, is that they'll go after your fucking employer. And that's why when you said, you know, is this like the equivalent of Nazis and communists? It's like, well, they're going after your employer because they can't bully you directly. So kind of. I hear every day from hundreds of people who tell me that they're afraid to speak up. And I try to tell people back. The moment when you realize you're afraid to speak up is the moment you have to start speaking up because this doesn't get better. It gets worse. That's the moment you start speaking up is the moment you realize you're too afraid to want to speak up. Grow a backbone, stand up to these people. And this is the message really of the last chapter of our book. You have the moral high ground if you're a liberal. You have the epistemological high ground because you believe in science and you believe anybody can benefit from science. You are in the position of, the so-called right side of history, if you want to steal their fucking language from them. And they aren't because they don't know what they're talking about. And their ethics are all kinds of backwards. They have what Paul Bloom would, would describe as, you know, misused empathy. Their empathy is bent out of shape and causing them to do things that, that are, are no longer, they're not even empathetic anymore they're cruel they're, they're they, they've left the path of wisdom as you might say from like you know you gandalf or whatever so it's like and somebody who breaks a thing to see how it works has left the path of wisdom they have they've left the fucking path of wisdom you have the moral you have the the epistemological high ground to stand up to these people and it's time you started acting like it
0: all right well I'm, we're going to end it right there this has been a remarkably wonderful conversation james yeah thanks jim Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.